You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And Neil, today I'd love to talk about the difference between data science and artificial intelligence. These things get sort of tossed around and they seem to be being used more and more interchangeably, but I don't think they're the same thing, right? Yeah, I was I was thinking about this and I mean, maybe everyone's answer is a little bit different, but a thought occurred to me that I think is uh, is an interesting way of looking at it. So this comes up a lot because machine learning is being used in both these fields, the field of data science and artificial intelligence. And I guess then everything gets conflated, oh, machine learning, machine learning. But I think that it's worth trying to make a separation. I thought we could have a go at it. Here's a possible separation. So I think that, you know, there's similar effects going on, but one of them is that we're collecting a lot of data, like Internet of Things, you know, mobile phones. If you look in fields like computational biology, we're just in a position where we're able to acquire a lot of data. And we're not really collecting that data with a task in mind. We're just collecting it by happenstance. I was actually at a meeting in the, uh, recently where John Aston called this new data versus what he was talking about as old data. And what I think he meant by that is uh, old data is the sort of data from the 1930s in statistics where people went out. They wanted to answer a question and they explicitly collected data to do it. Mm -hmm. But this new data is just appearing everywhere and people say, oh, we want to get value out of it. The new thing which is causing this new field of data science, what I think it uh, could be defined as, is trying to deal with this new type of data. Mm. So classical statistics just does really cool stuff. It's, it's all around us dealing with things like, is this drug effective right. in curing cancer? Yeah, and we've had it for a number of years. A, n a number of years, yeah. A number of years. I'd say going back <laughs> to you know, probably 100, 100 years old, that field. Right. So, but they didn't have computers then, or they right. did have computers, but computers were people. Computers were people, and they had tables and these sort of things. And they couldn't, um, well, getting access to data, data was valuable, and you sent people out to do surveys, or you designed experiments, and actually a lot of it's about good experimental design, randomization. But now we're just getting data everywhere. And uh, I, I feel that data science is really the domain of trying to make use of that data. So one of the things the early statisticians did is they worked out how you can try and draw conclusions like a statistical proof from data by designing mm -hmm. your experiment well. And they tried to remove things like subjective things like modeling. Um, and I think now we're in a stage where those techniques still work great. But what you'll see is there's a lot more modeling going on in data collection nowadays, even in domains that were considered classical statistics. So uh, in sort of polls, why aren't polls working so well? Well, actually, there's, a, there's an amount of little modeling going on in those polls and assumptions about the nature of the population, which are maybe changing more rapidly than mm. they should. And, and that's one plausible reason why polls aren't being very effective. But if you actually were to randomize and do what the early statisticians did, it would cost you a lot more money but you, you should still get a good result. Th those techniques haven't changed. But uh, modern data science, you know, it's like if I've got a load of data off someone's mobile phone and I'm interested in their health, well, what does it mean? I didn't collect that data necessarily for their health. I may just know something about their movement. And I think that that's a different set of problems and it's causing different challenges. And it's also becoming so pervasive yeah. that historically you sort of had this field of professional statisticians who were the guardians of the domain of data. But there's, there's not enough people like that to go around. There's new techniques being developed. And if data science means anything, I th well, it means different things to different people. It's one of those new terms. I think it might mean that. 
It's it's sort of this approach to data where you don't start with a thesis first. You used to like go into the world and ask a question about the world, but now it's just sort of like we have all these numbers. What do yeah. they say? Yeah, and actually, you've reminded me. That's a very good way of putting it. You reminded me of something that uh, Karl Popper said, which I really like. It's the quote of "Which comes first, the experiment or the model, is the same <laughs> as which comes first, the chicken or the egg." And and I like he said, very much. "I like that." And and then he says, "Well, the answer to both is they co-evolve." And I mm. think that that really is so. In classical stats, people were trying to say, "Well, the question comes first. The scientist has a question in their mind: Is this drug having an effect?" And then they design an experiment to answer that question. And they actually try and remove as much modeling as possible. They don't want to model the population if they can help it. Like there's things you might need to do, um, like you get dropout from your trial, or morally you realize early on that that your cure is working, and you're obliged to stop giving the placebo. Right to the negative group and start. So then, then things get messed up from a statistical point of view, it becomes harder. So some sort of modeling of those effects does come in. But the original idea of people like Fisher uh, was no, no, you don't model. Modeling is something physicists do. We don't understand society. We try and get rid of the model. Mm -hmm. But I think we're now we're much closer to that idea of Popper, which he was talking about in the context of philosophy of science. You know, y you don't know where to start, and there's this continuous cycle of uh, question, model, question, which might allow you to drill down. Now, classical statistics is still vitally important because very often you're sort of, uh, there's another portion of statistics known as exploratory data analysis, a field invented guy, a guy called John Tukey. Uh, in the 70s, um, and a lot of people were very anti this when he did it, but it was actually explicitly saying, well, there's a stage of stats which is just looking at data to try and develop hypotheses, and then confirmatory mm. data analysis is the classical stats. And I think, you know, maybe one way of seeing data science is it's exploratory data analysis gone mad. And the thing about <laughs> it is it's kind of like an art rather than a science. As you say, you, you put it really well, you said, you said that uh, in the past you used to sort of have a question and then you go collect data and now it's just like there's all these numbers what are we going to do and everyone's telling you oh there's value in your data and companies are trying to work it out yeah but we don't actually know really well how to get value out of all those things we know in certain circumstances it's working you know m many people are making money out of it but uh, it, it's uh, it's a sort of new and emerging field and people are using machine learning a lot in it now i think that it's important to remember that other fields like Data visualization, I think, is critical. Mm -hmm. Actually, in, in data science, I think communicating your um, results to the domain expert in a way that they, make, they can assimilate them and make the right decision, that's oh, a that's key crucial. part. Yeah, that's crucial. And um, in the, if it's a complex situation, then your answer may be complex. So right. visualization is a high bandwidth way of doing that, showing a picture, the right picture. But then there's all these questions, well, are you distorting by the picture you show? It's very mm -hmm. hard because statisticians dealt with this 100 years ago and sort of removed the subjectivity. So it worked hard to remove human subjectivity. But now it sort of feels like that's going to creep back in because we don't have quite the rigor of the classical statistical methods when we when we don't have such control over the design of what we're doing there's always some subjectivity and that might be from the modeler or it might be from the domain expert it, and i think that's why there's a new field and we have to look at some of these questions again yeah but uh, okay so that was a long explanation of data science let's uh, have a look at artificial intelligence and say well, well how's that different well i think that uh, what i would characterize artificial intelligence as is, is as a domain it doesn't necessarily require data at all you know, in theory, it could be. I think the early practitioners sort of felt, well, we can now encode logic, we can do deduction, we can do all these sort of things. Th they just mm -hmm. couldn't do quite as much as they'd hoped. And what's happened recently 
is the, a very successful approach to problems that are considered hard in artificial intelligence. And these are mainly perceptual problems, so like visual systems, hearing systems, mm -hmm. or language understanding, which I suppose is a little bit beyond uh, perception, but sort of text understanding. And these problems were considered very, very hard mainly because I guess people couldn't come down, come up with rules that allowed them to process that sort of data. Mm, it yeah. seems the way we've solved them is not by understanding how humans do it, by just copying them. <laughs> we've taught it to do it the way that we think that we do it, maybe? Well, we just show it a load of data that we did and said, here, recreate it. And then we make sort of some nice, sensible assumptions like smoothness, or in like convolutional neural networks, you know, the structures of neighboring pixels or in LSTMs. I think Ryan did a great uh, talk about the structure of neural networks, the different problems. And a lot of that structure you're putting into a neural network is, is about encoding things you expect, sensible things about your data. Mm -hmm. But that's nowhere near enough. Like in the old days, you would try and put the whole structure in, sort of in the sort of 50s or 60s. You'd try and think, well, this is how humans do it. They have some logical thing. And it kind of didn't work. So now uh, we just say, okay, here's some loose things, and here's an enormous amount of data from humans. Copy it, you know, just mm -hmm. or not copy it, sort of emulate it, recreate it, reconstruct it. And I sort of think that that's, um, in some sense, that's quite dissatisfying, isn't it? Is it's like you haven't generated new intelligence; you're sort of just copying other people's intelligence. And I'm not yeah, saying you've created a, a computer representation of a human intelligence. You haven't yeah. created a, a, a machine intelligence. You've just yeah. been and able to recreate. You've just been able to. You've just seen so much, and you've made some sensible assumptions, and now you can mm -hmm. sort of reconstruct. And that's why data has become so important. Now, it ha just happens that machine learning is a data-driven modeling paradigm that mm -hmm. is interested in prediction. And that's come up, you know, or has been interested in prediction more than explanation. And uh, that turns out to be very important in recreating these models in artificial intelligence, the big breakthroughs like the image network um, from Toronto, mm -hmm. which was, I think, the, the first big thing that everyone's, oh, goodness, look at neural networks. <laughs> and, uh, you know, more recent things in neural machine translation and, and these sort of domains, very exciting work. It, it's coming from uh, this sort of emulation, this very large data emulation and machine learning models being capable of doing that, being data-driven predictors that focus on the accuracy of the prediction, not the explanation. Mm -hmm. Data science, I think, needs some of that but it also needs the explanation side. That's another sort of difference. Very often in the data science domain, and actually I think we'll see that in artificial intelligence a lot as well. That's, that's probably a poor separation, but in data science, certainly in classical statistics, you do a lot more exp explanatory modeling. So I find both fields amazing because the really cool thing is say in data science, you know, I think if you're doing it well, you're interacting mm. with classical statisticians, you're interacting with domain experts who are interested in say traffic in cities or disease or something like this. You're interacting with um, people who understand data visualization. You're often also interacting with the side of which is data storage and databases, data verification. Uh, there's a sort of software engineering side to it. Machine learning has made advances, but unless you're working with those people, you're not working as part of the broader picture. Right. In AI, you're actually sometimes working then with domain experts in, say, classical uh, areas such as speech or vision, but you're also working often close to cognitive scientists. So 
I think that, um, and actually I think cognitive science has a big role in data science as well. Now, now where the two I think potentially come together is the way I've talked about data science is very much with human in the loop and there's a lot of stuff people are doing in data science which involves the human subjectivity around the modeling. But I think AI, you're sort of trying to replace humans um, or you're trying to take things that humans do well and, and reconstruct them. So clearly now that feeds back in. So AI for data science, I would see as the process of taking some of those jobs that humans do and then trying to emulate that so you can become more efficient about data science. If data science is explaining something and machine learning is predicting something, would AI for data science be predicting explanations of things and then all of our brains explode? Would that be? Well, now I have to go through that again. If data science is <laughs> for explaining things. Yeah, um, it's not entirely explaining things because sometimes you just do prediction, like will someone click on this ad and you don't care why. Right, you just right. Care that you, they, they were going to click. I, I think, how do I think of it? I think of it more like there's certain deployment jobs. Like AutoML is a good example. This domain of mm -hmm. AutoML where people are sort of automating, which of course Ryan was, was a key figure in, in automating the structure, the learning of the structure of neural networks. That's another 2012 paper, actually. So that's, yeah, every 20 years, 92, 2012. Can't wait till 2032. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that AutoML field has, has been about automated training of these neural networks. Now, they're neural networks, so they're often being used for AI-type tasks, but they could be being used. Mm. People also use it for sort of data science-type tasks. You're sort of there, you're replacing the human's training thing and trying to automate that process. So that's kind of like an AI thing, but almost like all AI things, as soon as you do it successfully, it's no longer an AI thing. AI is like the, right, of course. the section of intelligence that we can't do yet. It's a sort of moving boundary, you know, like as soon as they did chess, well, yeah, but it wasn't really AI, you know. And, you know, <laughs> and, you know yeah, yeah, that's an issue with AI, that it means different things to different people as well. Yeah, the moving flagpole. We'll have more about data science and artificial intelligence, the difference between them, and the similarities at our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question on Talking Machines is about how to get into the field of ML. I wonder if you guys have any opinions about how to transition from another field into machine learning. Do you have an opinion about MOOCs? Those are the massively online open courses, certifications, or courses in machine learning. If a person has a bachelor's degree and a few years of software engineering experience unrelated to machine learning, do we have any advice about how to move into the field? So, Neil, this seems like something that people are really excited about these days, the idea of moving into machine learning. Um, but from my vantage point, as sort of like an interested layperson, it seems incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to get the training you would need to be an efficient and effective practitioner without a PhD. But I, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, that's an efficient and effective practitioner without a it PhD. It sort of depends what people mean by machine learning. So one of the things I often do with people when they're telling me they do machine learning and I'm trying to understand a little bit about what they're about, mm -hmm. I say, are you a consumer of um, machine learning algorithms or a generator of machine learning Ah, this is a very good distinction. Yeah, so consumers being people that sort of typically have a set of problems or they're asked to work around different problems and they need machine learning algorithms to solve them, whereas a generator of machine learning algorithms is someone thinks, well, no one's got a machine learning algorithm to do X, so I'm going to design one. 
Mm -hmm. The generator, I mean, requires uh, not necessarily a PhD. You know, you, uh, people can do what they like. They're allowed to generate machine learning algorithms. There's no police force that comes. <laughs> Maybe there should be. The, um, no, the M no, there shouldn't be. <laughs> the ML secret police. The ML secret oh, no. police. If you, if you start trying to create a new ML algorithm, <laughs> that, that happens when you submit it to a conference, then the ML secret yes, police yes, appear. Yes, yes. Um, Someone from a committee shows up with a bunch of paperwork and a grim look on their face. We're very sorry about but this. They but they don't discriminate if you don't have a PhD. They just explain right, that show you up. didn't cite their work or whatever. Um, no, they, they <laughs> yes, also, you know, yes. And actually, actually, one of the big things you learn during a PhD is what people are interested in. I remember at the beginning of my PhD, I'd read books about machine learning, and I had all these ideas about what I wanted to do, books that were filled mm. with apparently unsolved problems and but by the time I got into the field no one was interested in those unsolved oh, problems no. they'd moved on and so I worked oh, on no. a lot of these unsolved problems and people were like well, who cares and it's like but it says in this book I read it in this book and I, it took me a while to get over that so actually one of the things you learn in a PhD if you you know publishing a, a sort of conferences have a lot of fashion to them and publishing is much easier if you've been surrounded by what people are interested in. You know your audience. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of it's about communication, the way you communicate. And unfortunately, it's much easier to get a sort of a small extension to existing problems into a conference. You know, it has to be not a small, not mm -hmm. a trivial extension. But it has to, it, because that everyone can relate to that. Oh, they did this thing that right. I know about that I think is cool. And they did, you know, they did an incremental move that I can understand, but perhaps wouldn't mm -hmm. have thought of myself. That's the easiest way to get published. It's harder to get published. Right. One thing that's really hard to get published is an uh, idea that's obvious in retrospect once you write it because your reviewers just go, well, that's obvious in retrospect. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know or uh, something that's extremely radical um, that goes beyond the thinking. And, and PhDs definitely, or spending time with people in the scientific community, not necessarily a PhD, definitely helps you understand that psychology. But you don't need that to, to actually develop interesting methods so if you're a consumer of machine learning methods you don't need that i don't want to go too far down that line i already have so let's sort of pull back and sort of sort of look at ways of getting in so let's you know so i think the question was that your bachelor's wasn't necessarily software engineering my bachelor's mm -hmm. was mechanical engineering yeah and i sort of heard about neural networks and i was working on oil rigs and i thought oh those sound Ow. cool and yeah, you get a lot of like, like, like when you work, when I had to work, I was working for this company called Schlumberger. I'd work 24 hours up to 36 hours straight. Yeah. But when I wasn't working, I had time to just, you know, sit there and read or whatever. So I actually uh, got into neural networks doing that. And it, it, you just had to understand in those days, you just had to understand a little bit of math. You had to understand what an objective function was and understand the chain mm -hmm. rule and be able to differentiate. Now you don't even know how to differentiate. I actually wrote C++ <laughs> code to try and implement a neural network, which I realized in retrospect was all totally wrong. Now you can just take TensorFlow and have a play. Mm. Now, in line with what we said before, the data science conversation, there's certain things you need to know. We talked about generalization a few weeks mm -hmm. back. We talked about bias variance dilemma. There's certain things you should be aware of. You can learn those in master's courses, or you can learn those probably on MOOCs. A lot of people that come to me have done Andrew Ng's course. Fewer people seem to have completed Daphne Kohler's course, but a lot of people start it. I think it's a tougher course. I get the it's sense a really that good one, it's a, I, I, I bet it is, because Daphne is amazing. Um, mm -hmm. But it, it's sort of Andrew's more, as I understand, I haven't done the courses, but the impression I gain covering lots of different things you can use. So it's great for mm -hmm. consumers of machine learning. I think Daphne goes on much deeper in a very interesting area. Definitely. 
and, and it's, it's not easy to do a MOOC, um, I think, without the community of people around you and, and learn right. something. So then there's other great opportunities like machine learning competitions, like Kaggle does a lot. And a lot of people get into machine learning by doing Kaggle. And I don't know, I assume there's communities built up around those challenges as well, and you learn from others. I mean, you, learning by doing has got to be a really great way. So, so I would really strongly encourage that. And you, you'll find loads of people put their lectures online. You'll find Jupyter Notebooks, which is this way of illustrating like an analysis or an idea. My own lectures, for example, are online. So um, Gaussian process lectures from my master's course I used to teach and also from the summer school we do. So mm -hmm. th those are all sort of great things. Having passion is key. So having a real reason you want to do it. And I think having a particular problem you're really interested in. That helps a lot because, you know, then you're sort of driven to try and solve it and try doing different machine learning methods. I think that's a really interesting point about perseverance because the one thing that doing talking machines has shown to me that the people who are really successful have a question and continue to ask it over and over again despite years of challenges and, and lots of things not working and having to try things in a variety of ways. So I think that one of the things that's really key when you're getting into this field is to know that it's not magical and it's going to take a lot of, of effort and work and time spent on it. I think that lots of people are excited about the field because it seems um, it seems magical, but there's a lot of perseverance that goes into the work that's being done here. I think that's right. And you were reminding me of, you know, when we when we interviewed Ryan, you know, the number of things he told us about that weren't successes. Mm -hmm. That it happened to work out, and but it worked out because Ryan cared. Right. He was driven by it. He wanted to do these things, and he kept pestering these senior right. professors. <laughs> <laughs> he showed up on somebody's boat or something. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I have my own stories like that. I was about, I, I swear, I say, there's a particular paper. There's the IVM paper. I think it's 2003. I was on the verge of giving up <gasps> because I couldn't get things into NIPS. You know, just in totally like... If I don't get something in now, which is about 2000, I think it was the informative vector machine paper with uh, Ralph Herbrick and mm. Matthias Sager, then I, I couldn't, I was trying to be a lecturer, I was trying to lecture, I was trying to teach, I was trying to, you know, I felt like a fish out of water in a computer science yeah. department because I was a mechanical engineer undergraduate. And I just remember thinking, you know, if, if this one doesn't go in, and we made a big effort, and, and Matthias did great coding on that paper, <laughs> and we scaled it up to do MNIST, which at the time was very important. And it got in, and, and that sort of unblocked me a little bit, because that gave me the courage, and then, and then a few things flowed, and, and I kind of uh, got on top of it. And one of the things I worked very actively doing is understanding the community I'd chosen to work in, mm. which was Gaussian processes. So we did a lot of workshops together. There was a smallish group of us then, you know, 20 of us to which for me was a lot about finding out what my colleagues cared about because these were the people that in effect were going to review right. my papers that's less easy to do today like in the uh, I, a lot of my gaussian process papers are rejected nowadays because you know the why the community is too large for me to know what they necessarily mm -hmm. care about a lot of things i care about other people don't care about so i get a lot more rejects now than i would have done i mean the percentage accepts are about the same uh, overall but sorry the marginal percentage of receptors for everyone is the same, but my own record is a lot worse. So, you know, it might be um, that everyone's got much brighter. <laughs> That's quite possible. Uh -huh. And I think the, 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 the only way you get through that, and it is crushingly disappointing. No one must ever forget that. It's crushingly disappointing when something you have yeah. put so much passion into 
is, is ripped apart by reviewers who sometimes didn't even seem to bother reading it. And the funny thing is, the people who were most crushed by that also go and do the same ripping apart right. themselves. Um, I think it's almost because it becomes like this thing, well, if I didn't get in, this shouldn't right. get it. And people forget that conferences are about communication and sharing of ideas. And uh, I think that that makes it very hard if, you know, uh, you need good support, you need people to help you. Some brilliant people don't need this. They just do amazing <laughs> things, some people. But they're quite few. The consumers of machine learning, I just think it's becoming easier and easier in some sense to get started with ML algorithms. I mean, almost too easy that we don't have this set of understandings of how to regulate mm. that, that, like, you know, the danger of people deploying these things unthoughtfully. Right. And I think that we're, we're in that zone, that it's quite easy for people to do things with people's data in, in a kind of unthoughtful way, and, and that's that's yeah. a worry. And but the, you know, frameworks like uh, you know we, we talked about it the last time or the time before, uh, a TensorFlow, how easy you can start models up and running from that, and that's sophisticated models. Those are not easy yeah. to code. Certainly, you know, as though in the 90s we couldn't have coded them. <laughs> Things like Scikit-Learn, if you're interested in sort of more classical machine learning methods, that, that's just an amazing set of tools. Um, with you know people like Andreas Muller driving it forward, these introductions to machine learning. I think he's got. I haven't read it, but I know he's got. A, I think it's an O'Reilly book out on that. Really, loads of literature, loads of online videos. I mean, the thing is, like, where do you start? Because there's so many things. So very often, a problem, being interested in a specific problem you want to solve, can can be help you guide you through that literature, or a person, someone who, uh, um, some sort of mentor, and and that doesn't have to be a very that could be a, a friend at university who's a PhD student, who's an expert, who's friendly enough to help you out, things like that. It's very hard to say there's exactly one thing mm. you should do because it will depend very much on people's circumstances, but it's getting easier to get into. You don't need a lot of classical software engineering because the type of thing you're often doing is, in the end, you know, machine learning is often very few lines of code. So what you really need to get a sense of is how to look mm -hmm. at data which is a different thing. It's a bit like, I always say it's more like debugging, you know, doing data analysis. It's not like programming. It's like someone gives you like, it's like someone gives you a hard drive with a load of code that you've got no idea right, where it came right. from, and then you've got to integrate that in a system. Now, that, that would horrify a software <laughs> engineer. That would be the last thing they would ever want to do. Um, and in fact, most of software engineering is making sure you don't get in yeah. that state. But with a data set, that's kind of what you're doing. That art is, is not, there's not really many formal processes for how you do that. So just getting down and doing it, I'd love to, f to, to, to understand better how we're all doing that and share best practice. But just getting down and doing it yourself and being self-critical, that's a really important skill. PhDs do help teach you that, like you know, not believing every result mm -hmm. you get, double checking what you're doing, does that make sense? You know, there's very few tears in the fabric of maths, but it's surprising how many I used to think there were when I first started. <laughs> I don't know. Hey, now I've discovered some amazing result. No, it's a bug. You know, that's like supervising uh, young PhD students. That's kind of like one of the things you do. I've discovered some amazing. No, I think you may have a bug. You know, you, right, you might be right. right. The probability that you haven't discovered a new universe is just something through. wrong with your code is much higher. <laughs> Yeah, very often it's a bug. And, um, <laughs> and I think the, the debugging in machine learning itself, so debugging right. your code is also a particular thing, doing sanity checks. But a lot of that is easier now with things like TensorFlow and um, well, the, mm -hmm. Theano, the original mm -hmm. framework. Keras, Francois Cholet's wonderful wrapper around, that wraps around the TensorFlow, Theano, MXNet, other frameworks. It means it's very easy to start playing mm -hmm. with these things. So it sounds like regardless of whether or not you are a consumer or a generator, some good things to have are 
uh, a question that you're passionate about that's going to be able to keep you going and a community of people that you can sort of bounce questions off of and explore things and sort of get around in whatever field you're really interested and excited about. Yeah, those two things are equally important. But one effect I've seen on the community, which I just wanted to call out because it's I love it, is the way that when people around you achieve things, you yourself think, oh, maybe I can also do that because mm. you know the person. And you think, well, wait, if they did that, maybe I could have a go. Right. And that rises everyone to greater heights. And when a community is working and it's productive and cohesive, as machine learning has tended to be, and, and generally supportive, you know, that's just a beautiful thing. And, and so being surrounded by other people and say, well, hang on, they did that. And, oh, maybe I can do that. And then it, you sort of chase each other, you know, and it's, it's great. It's very cool. Excellent. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at T-L-K-N-G-M-C-H-N-S. Our guest on this episode of Talking Machines is Joaquin Quinero Candela, and he's Director of Applied Machine Learning at Facebook. And when we got a chance to sit down with him, we asked him the first question that we ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are? Yeah, no, this might be a, a longer answer than you than, we, than you wish for, but let's let, let, <laughs> no, let's, give let's, us the whole thing. Let, let's go for it. Um, so yeah, just to just to give context, I guess that at the at the moment where I am is I lead a very exciting team at at Facebook. It's almost like a like a dream come true. I I never thought I'd I'd be uh, where I am, to be completely honest. And so we've built the uh, applied research team for for Facebook. And uh, we call it Applied ML. And how did I get there? Um, I got interested in machine learning by, by accident. I, I studied telecommunications engineering in, in Spain. This is a, a five-year-long degree where you do uh, a lot of uh, electrical engineering. You do some computer science. You do quite a bit of math as well. And I was incredibly lucky to have a, a professor whose name is Anibal Figueres, and uh, he's still one of my heroes. He was teaching us advanced nonlinear digital signal processing, and he was telling us how to unscramble signals that get a little bit uh, jammed by, by channels that change through time. And in order to do that, he taught us about, about neural networks uh, to do that. And I was completely fascinated, like the idea that you could train a model on on data and that you could, uh, you know, equalize a signal that you could sort of recover, you know, a clean signal from something that was messy, uh, just seemed like pure magic. So I got very, very intrigued by neural networks. I then went on and I did my master thesis uh, with him on, on machine learning. Looking back, it was a relatively straightforward master thesis, but it got me into into machine learning. And another another important thing is that <clears throat> for my master thesis, I I read a Chris Bishop's first mm. book mm-hmm. on machine learning, the, the sort of 1995 uh, book by by Chris on pattern recognition, and um, yeah, and that was amazing. Another accidental thing was that I did um, what in Europe we call an Erasmus exchange mm. uh, mm-hmm. semester. And I looked for the place that was farthest away from, from Spain. That was my criterion. Nice. I just wanted to go far away. And so I went, I went to Denmark, to the, to, the, to the DTU, so to the Danish Technical University. I was far away enough, and uh, uh, near Copenhagen. 
And there I, I met Carl Rasmussen. Uh, in fact, the funny thing you, you know, earlier uh, we were talking about this run that I that I did. Um, I went running with Carl. We're still very close friends. Carl ended up being my PhD advisor. Oh, Carl wow. was at that university. He was offering uh, uh, a course on neural networks, and I uh, ended up doing a project with him. And he had a, a PhD position, and he offered me to come back and do a PhD. So wow. it was a second second accident, I guess. As you can see, none of this was really planned. So I did a PhD in machine learning with Carl. To make a long story short, that led me to spend a wonderful couple of years finishing my PhD and doing a postdoc at the Max Planck Institute in southern Germany in Tübingen, working with people like Bernhard Scholkopf. And then after that, I, I met uh, Ralph Herbrich uh, by, by chance at a conference. There's a small conference called Snowbird. It no longer exists, but it used to be a really, really cool small conference uh, by invitation. So the numbers were small, no proceedings. You know, you just go and like talk about cool stuff. I met Ralph there, and um, Ralph was working at Microsoft Research in Cambridge. Hmm. And he said, hey, um, why, don't you, why don't you come and give a talk? And then uh, he called me a few days later and said, actually, why don't you come and interview? And, <laughs> and so I went and I, and I did that. And then Microsoft Research was uh, a pivotal place in my, in my career. I learned a ton of stuff. And most importantly, at Microsoft Research, I got exposed for the first time to applications of machine learning. Hmm. Uh, the, the context was that, Microsoft organized a, uh, a competition internally uh, where a couple of dozen teams participated where the goal was to predict clicks on ads as accurately as possible mm. in order to rank them. Mm. Um, and we won it. We won that, that competition. So it was Yeah, no, it was, it was amazing. And then what happened there is that I became an impact junkie. So when we won that competition, I just became addicted to the idea Immediate that, feedback. Yeah, that you, could, that you could actually do something useful with machine learning. And that you could actually see the results, like the end results. And that actually has marked my approach to machine learning ever since. Mm. And in fact, it has marked the, marked the, the philosophy that I, that I use with the team right now, which is I only care about the final impact. Mm. Uh, intermediate results are okay, mm -hmm. but we should always look at what the end game is. So that was Microsoft. Uh, and then in, in 2012, I visited Ralph, uh, who was working at Facebook. I had no intention of changing jobs, but I, I visited him. Uh, he was busy. He didn't have time. He couldn't take time off. So I just hung around at the Facebook campus. Nice. And I was just hanging around there, looking around me. And then on day two of hanging around, I called my wife, and I told who was in Cambridge. So we were living in Cambridge in the UK at the time. And mm -hmm. I told her, can I interview at Facebook? <laughs> So she was a little bit shocked, but she just heard it in my voice. And uh -huh, she went, yeah, yeah you can. Oh, Go nice. For it. Excellent. This was a big deal. We had uh, three kids. It, oh, meant, wow. it meant relocating the entire family. You know, I had visited Ralph on a Thursday and Friday. Uh, the following Monday, I interviewed and I got an offer that same week. And wow. then I moved to Facebook. One thing I forgot to mention is that, and this is a very important transition, um, when I was at, at Microsoft Research, uh, after working on, on click prediction from the research side for two and a half years, and after experiencing this gap you have between a research organization and, and engineering, I actually got an opportunity uh, to join the engineering team and, and to leave Microsoft Research, mm. which sounded like a crazy thing to do because Microsoft Research was an incredible haven where you could do research undisturbed without having to write grant proposals, without having to teach. Um, and then you could choose to do engineering if you wanted. 
But the, the reason for the gap is that researchers weren't supposed to write or maintain production code. Mm. Um, so that, that did frustrate me a little bit. And it, it actually caused me to accept the offer when, when, when the Bing team... So actually, this was just around the time when Bing launched. Mm-hmm. And, and then the algorithm that we had worked on actually launched together with Bing to, to rank ads. And, and that was sort of... It was a fairly dramatic transition. I mean, I'll, I'll say that I lost sleep a lot of nights. It was incredibly stressful to go from never having managed people and, and, and not really having had a, a formal engineering training yeah, to, to leading course. an engineering team uh, in Bing, right. responsible for the click prediction algorithm, where anytime something would go wrong, everybody would blame the, the machine learning algorithm because right. it was the, 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 black, the mysterious black box, right? right. the non-deterministic part. Yeah. Yeah. But that transition was actually one of the most important decisions I made in my life because it, it allowed me to experience life on the other side. Mm. Um, and so I think now, I think it's been instrumental to where I am right now because the organization that I, that I lead really bridges between research yeah. and production. Yeah, so tell, so tell me more about that. How do you handle the relationship between research and production at Facebook these days? So the, the applied machine learning uh, team is, is an incredibly engineering-centric applied research organization where we actually take ownership of platforms and, wow. and, and, and services. Um, we don't only do uh, research. The, the goals of the, of the team are, uh, on the one hand, to commoditize AI mm. and, and machine learning. Mm-hmm. What that means is to really make it available deep into the engineering fabric of Facebook so that people can take it for granted. Mm. Uh, and at the moment, we have well over 40 teams who use uh, the core services and platforms we've built. Wow. Uh, we also maintain, the team maintains the, the compute layer as well. So we actually wow. will do production engineering um, as well. I think the reason this is extremely important is that it allows to dramatically accelerate the, the transfer of new technology. Yeah. We work very closely with Facebook AI research. In fact, uh, Jan LeCun and I uh, share manager. We both report to our CTO. Fantastic. And we talk all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, through providing those platforms and services that dozens of teams uh, you know, depend on for their experimentation and their production models, we have built incredibly strong relations with them. And so we have a very good understanding of, of, of what they need. The second goal of the team is um, is to advance the state of the art with the purpose of maximizing product impact. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of interesting because this informs the, the choices we make. So to give you a very concrete example, uh, one of the things we're doing is we're evaluating um, deep learning for machine translation. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the moment, we're not using it in production, but it is a research project. The team is trying to fail fast. The team is trying to see very quickly, is this going to improve the perceived quality of translations on Facebook? Mm-hmm. And that is the goal. You know, we collaborate with FAIR, of course, and, and the work they're doing um, will be successful if they manage to make, you know, fundamental advances. And even if those don't translate into perceived quality improvements, that's fine, as long as they lead to seminal papers, right? Right. So in a way, between FAIR uh, and us, we sort of covered the entire spectrum of research for the purpose of advancing uh, science and research for maximizing uh, product impact. And then finally, the third goal, which is really interesting, actually, and helps bridge the gap, is to build new product experiences. Hmm. So the reason this is important is that 
when you come to Facebook and you look at the many dozen teams that are using uh, ML or computer vision or language technology, um, they're doing it in the context of products that already exist. Mm -hmm. So for example, you have uh, the integrity team tries to filter out offensive content, bullying, tries to find, uh, you know, now that videos are becoming big, videos that contain content that is not acceptable, mm -hmm. um, you know, feed does rank the news feed. So that's an obvious one. Uh, ads ranking is another one. Search needs ranking too. All of those are existing places where you know you have an ML system that exists already. Right. So, you know, we can, through commoditization, we can make it run faster. We can push new algorithms into it. And we do a lot of innovation in that sense. But we also work on breaking ground on things that product teams might not even know is possible. Right. And so it is essential that we actually, rather than knocking in the, on their door and saying, hey, we now are able to describe the content of an image using natural language. Now you guys go build something. Right, right. That doesn't work. <laughs> what you need to do is you just build a prototype or you build a demo. Mm -hmm. So we have a product strategy that, that um, walks the whole spectrum from, you know, throw away demos that maybe are only internal, uh, you know, Mark and our CTO, Shreb, will actually show publicly demos that we build. Uh, a recent one that Mark and Shreb were talking about is visual Q&A, where you can have a, a dialogue. You sort of see a, an image and you can ask questions about, you know, this is one about a, a cat that's sniffing some uh, bananas and the bananas are actually not totally ripe, so they're a bit green and, and, and yellow. And you say, you know, what is a cat doing? And then you'll hear a voice that says, oh, the cat is sniffing bananas. What colors are the bananas there? Uh, green and yellow. <laughs> People didn't know that could exist. So, so by building uh, a, an early demo, what happened is that the accessibility team that tries to make Facebook accessible to the blind mm. came to <sighs> us and said, "Oh wow, we could we could totally you know we could totally take this for a huge further. assisted use case." Yeah, for sure. No, absolutely, and we're incredibly excited. So this is one of the areas that this is sort of one um, of many examples where we actually focus on building new product experiences. Um, you know, in, in in translation, for example. Um, the, the machine translation team has actually gone ahead and written uh, code in, in Newsfeed and built the, the feedback loop to allow people to give feedback on how useful the translation was. This is actually fairly delicate because, um, you know, people may, <laughs> if, you, if you give people like something quite naive, like some stars to choose from, yeah. they may use that to tell you how much they like the, the post. The content. Yeah, yeah rather yeah. than whether they like the translation. Right. So it's subtle, right? Right. So you can't just throw the ball over the fence and then and then let the product Expect team do the Expect to get work. the same ball back. No, right. you just have to go and own it end-to-end, -end, right? Mm -hmm. And like that, there's many examples. So yeah, just to, just to recap, you know, the, the three goals of the team are to commoditize AI, um, to advance the state of the art for maximum product impact, and to build new product experiences. And the domains in which we do this are core machine learning, uh, computer vision. Mm -hmm. We, In particular, we have face recognition that is that is used to tag uh, people. I, don't, I wonder whether you've seen mm -hmm. this on Facebook. Yes. Yeah, the ability to tag people. That's something that the team builds and maintains. Wow. Then we also have language technology. And in language technology, we have things like translations. There's about 2 billion translated posts on, on Facebook every single day. Wow. That scale is pretty big. Um, and then we also have speech recognition. We're investing very, very heavily on, on automatic speech recognition because we think that a lot of the interfaces uh, of the future are going to assume that you have in-house speech recognition. Hmm. And then finally, we're also working on 
conversational understanding and, and natural language understanding because we think that the world of um, messenger bots is is coming and people are going to have expectations that these are sort of incre- increasingly sophisticated. Mm. And then finally, the last area we work on is computational photography, uh, where we just try to build delightful experiences for people. So, you know, uh, a lot of people are capturing panorama photos, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. You know, when you when you render a panorama photo in a naive way, it's not a great experience. So right. you really want to, for example, you know, one of the research projects is like turn that into a uh, an actual 360 photo browsing experience, wow. either on your phone or if you have a, you know, if you have a Gear VR in your Gear VR, if you have, if you're lucky to be one of the Kickstarter early founders and you have an Oculus Rift, then an <laughs> Oculus Rift. Right. But, you know, soon... Hopefully, many people will have an Oculus Rift. Right. Oh, man. So of all of these amazing things, what do you feel like is the frontier that's moving most quickly or is making the sort of most drastic jumps? The first one that comes to mind, I think, is is computer vision, mm. where deep learning uh, has just unleashed uh, a step change, right? So we make predictions about the content of every single image and video that are uploaded to Facebook every day. Wow. And we're, we're looking at like order of magnitude is like the, the billion uh, every single day. Oh my gosh. And the, the accuracy with which you can do this and the level of granularity keeps increasing mm. dramatically. Like every couple of months you look again, it's like, look ma, now I can actually... <laughs> Now I can actually tell you where that chair is on the picture. Right. Uh, and look, ma, now I can actually like, <laughs> you know, tell you what type of chair it is. Or, like <laughs> we had this, re- this recent piece of work where, you know, in collaboration with Facebook AI Research on like being able to actually recognize what precise breed uh, any dog is. Oh, right? man. For example, right? And these things just keep moving so fast. It's, faster, it's, it's faster. crazy. An area I'm very interested in where, where we're investing, we're doubling down is actually... Uh, text like mm. understanding natural language deep learning uh, happens to also be very helpful there and you know looking forward one of the one of the places where i can't wait to see advances is i'd like to have natural conversations with a with, with a bot right and mm. i'd like to be able to have my own personal assistant that you know can sort of help me get stuff done more right. efficiently yeah so we're not there yet but uh, it's one of the it's one of the places that we're investing on so, so you run this, you run this huge team with all of these areas of interest. Um, tell me a little bit about how, how you find these unicorns to come and work for you and, and be able to not only do the basic research, but then apply it, but also like build the demos that will inspire the other teams to, to find new use cases for them. And also how do you create a culture for that team? How do you, how do you keep them together and keep them moving forward? Yeah. Building, um, building a culture that allows a, a pretty large, uh, applied research team to operate efficiently and, and to really work as one is is a full-time job and I guess that's <laughs> it's your full-time that, job that's, that's my full-time job yeah, in fact, yeah absolutely one of the most important things is to make uh, very clear to everybody that there is one single measure of success mm. and it is delivered impact mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so to give you a concrete example of what I mean by that take for example the problem of ranking ads mm-hmm. Uh, the way you rank ads is you have a value function that the ads organization has has built. And essentially, it captures the expected utility to, to the advertiser and to the person who uses Facebook of seeing that ad. So, you know, the ingredients that go into that are, of course, the, the bid that the advertiser is placing mm-hmm. for, you know, whatever events they care about. So if 
you know, the, the, if the person who browses Facebook can perform a conversion, but because this is like an e-commerce site, they, you know, we offer them the ability to only pay if, if the, if the customer actually buys something. Right. Mm. So, but if you want to do that, you have to estimate the probability right. that the person will do that before yeah. they see the ad. Right. Right. And, and you have to sort of do that on like a ton of candidate ads. Right. And so this becomes a, a ranking problem that is based on your ability to predict uh, an event. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So obviously you should keep increasing the accuracy of those predictions. And as you do that, you increase the average relevance of the ads people see. And, you know, they're more relevant to people, which is good. And they're more valuable to advertisers, which is good. Mm -hmm. But there comes a point where you could actually uh, make further algorithmic improvements. And you could show that whatever metric of the accuracy of those predictions has increased. Right. So you can I could have uh, one of the members of the team come to me and say, hey, um, I've reduced the average error of the predictions by this much percent, and that's great. Now I should be rewarded, right? Right. My answer to that is going to be, I don't care. (laughs) My my answer to that is going to be, well, have you run a live experiment Mm. and have you actually measured how the average value to advertisers and relevance to people has moved? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And here's, here's a scenario where the change could actually be zero. And that's if the predictions don't change substantially right and, and if they all change relative to each other right it's possible that the that the actual ordering of the ads doesn't change right. although the predictions all change. together exactly which means that actually as far as the advertisers and the users are concerned <laughs> right. it's like nothing happened right right right, right. <laughs> therefore you can't possibly get credit for this <laughs> right 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 and so i think that's what makes um this team a little bit different from an organization that is purely focused on 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 improving the state of the art yeah period right and it's interesting like People struggle with this in the beginning, but then I think it becomes addictive. Like I think, I think once people really get it, right, uh, and also once people understand another part of the culture, which is that you actually own uh, that impact. Mm-hmm. Like you shouldn't expect that anyone is going to come and tell you what it is. You, right. you are responsible for asking the hard questions. Yeah. You know, we are a team that collaborates with dozens of teams at Facebook. It is extremely important that we ask the hard questions. How important is this? Right. Can you guys do it without us? Right. Mm-hmm. It becomes addictive and people actually very soon like it. And then when they start writing their posts and their reports, they start putting impact, you know, in the, in the front seat. And, and I think that sort of helps guide, you know, the, the, yeah. the spirit of the team. So that's, that's one of the fascinating things about industry. I think, especially the part of machine learning that's involved in industries, you have this, this amazing, incentive of immediate feedback and and ability to create change. So how do you see academia and industry as they sort of move farther apart from each other in their ability to get data and use that data and create new things or new products around that data? How do you see that, that having an impact on, on the community of ML and AI researchers? Yeah, that is a very difficult question. Um, You made a statement there. You sort of said that industry and academia are drifting apart. Mm. I want to believe that's not always the case. You know, for example, you and I are talking here at this uh, DALI 2016 meeting Mm -hmm. where there's a good mix of people from industry and people from academia. So, you know, we we keep talking. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Those of us in in industry have not forgotten our our origins. We, We definitely remember Right. Uh, that we owe it to the academic community to to be where we are and, and also to be able to recruit the people who work in our teams. Mm. And so I'm not the only one who firmly believes that research uh, organizations in industry need to be very, very open about what we do. Mm. And I, I want to pause on the sharing data aspect 
for a moment. Mm -hmm. I'll get back to that of in course. a second because that one is, is a little bit more com complicated, right? But you will see and continue to see a lot of papers published jointly by people in, in academia and people in, in industry. And I think that's a very healthy uh, way to do things. I don't think, you know, we should focus in industry on holding the IP on specific uh, algorithms and, you know, just patenting everything and not sharing it. I don't think that, I think in the long run, that is not an optimal strategy. Sharing data is complicated and I think it's an eternal debate, like to what degree is academia limited because they don't have access to relevant data. Mm. I do think I do think there are a lot of very interesting, very large data sets out there that are that are public. Um, to be clear, companies like Facebook operate under the promise to to people that we will never ever share with anyone right. your data. Right. And actually, and you wouldn't want us to do that. Right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> and, and therefore, we're never going to do it. Right. And so that's, I think that's just not an option. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> having, having said that, there are things like, um, you know, as part of the Coco Challenge for object recognition in, in, in images, this is something that people at Microsoft and also people at Facebook have been, have been involved in. And mm -hmm. I think that is a beautiful way to, you know, use some of our um, uh, resources and in, mm -hmm. in building data sets that are relevant for, for everybody. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, I want to change tax a little bit. Um, as, as the person who is sort of the, 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 the general for applications of machine learning, especially at Facebook, I mean, at Facebook, where I think a lot of the, the lay public interacts with machine learning. It's one of the main places. How do you respond when the lay public wants to know what machine learning is or wants to understand what applications for machine learning are already touching their lives. Like what is your explanation or, or, um, description of how people are already using this themselves? Yeah. I mean, well, what, what I'll say is that the Facebook and also, you know, Instagram that people know today could not exist without machine learning period. Mm. <laughs> like, you would not enjoy your <laughs> Facebook experience at all, right? Right. If we didn't uh, use um, a heavy dose of machine learning to rank your newsfeed, mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, we do experiments where we present the stories in uh, reverse chronological order, for example, mm -hmm. and it's pretty obvious that that you would engage a lot less with, with, with Facebook. You yeah. would actually read a lot fewer stories. Hmm. You would like fewer stories. Ah. You, would, you would share fewer stories. You would write fewer comments. And we know. So we have um, quantified this very, very clearly. We try to be um, very open about how we do things. And in fact, the, the newsfeed team has done uh, a great job at this. They, they, have a, they have a microsite, and I can give you the, I can give you the address uh, later, where in a, in a kind of like very visual way, they sort of explain how we rank the stories you see oh, in your awesome. newsfeed, right? So we try to be very transparent about both why we do it, mm -hmm. uh, which is we want you to see the stories you care about and nothing else, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the how we do it. Mm -hmm. So what kind of signals go into, into predicting that. There are other areas that people might not know about and it's a good thing um, and that is how we automate for example the detection and elimination of offensive content right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so if you give 1.5 billion people the ability to upload videos and photos bad stuff 
will happen. Yeah. <laughs> just by chance. Like yes. some people will upload uh, outrageous or offensive or extremely violent content. Mm-hmm. The, the naive way to do this would be to let them upload it and then have a big uh, little sort of cross or signal or whatever that allows people to report it as offensive. Mm-hmm. And then whenever, you know, a particular piece of content has gotten enough negative feedback like that, it gets into a queue to be reviewed by professional raters who will look at it and say, oh yeah, no, this is indeed uh, bad content and we're going to manually take it down. Well, guess what? Uh, given, given the amount of people that are active on Facebook, you're going to have thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people will have seen that piece of offensive right, context. before so, it becomes... Yeah, so, so the damage is done. Yeah. So we put a lot of effort in computer vision at building models that are extremely precise mm-hmm. at detecting um, offensive content and then taking it, taking it down before anyone ever sees it. And at the moment, we've crossed a, we've crossed a line where more elimination of offensive content is automatic than manual mm. and, and i feel incredibly proud about this so this is the kind of thing where like people don't know this is going on and that's a good thing yeah yeah joaquin quinero candela director of applied machine learning at facebook he's just so amazing to talk to my mind was just blown throughout that whole conversation and he's you know you know what we were talking about it's funny we had him on today because what we were talking about earlier he was at all these early Gaussian process things. We got to know each other like 10 years ago. And he's one of those people that's sort of driven me on, particularly with what he's done and achieved at Facebook. I mean, I think, uh, you know, my own career changes are inspired by the people around me. And I've watched Joaquin work. He's an extraordinary person. That passion you need, he has it. Mm-hmm. And he has just an extraordinary drive to achieve goals in the long term he's inspiration he's the whole package but but and and that's that's as i was saying before that's also inspired me he's been we've collaborated and he's great to work with it was, it was so great to hear from him yeah definitely he's one of the the really the fundamental members of the community really amazing to get a chance to talk to him well that's it for us today on talking machines i'm katherine gorman and i'm neil lawrence tune in next episode